fell asleep in church. History and Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the second pot. We hope that you have your second pot of coffee going or your favorite energy drink or a two-liter of Mountain Dew or something that will keep you caffeinated and keep you excited for this next few minutes we have together. I am Caleb Spiker, and I'm here with... Serena Wolf. And we are going to continue talking about stuff going on in the life of the church, Um, probably talk a little bit more about the hypostatic union, because, wow. That's where it's at. It's fun. So uh, stay tuned, and we will have fun. We'll make it happen. We'll do it. Let's go. All right, Caleb, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so um, on over the last few weeks, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed. Um, and you know, the last two weeks, we talked about the divinity of Jesus and why we think that Jesus needs to be divine. And then this past week, the humanity of Jesus and why Jesus has to be human. Um, and we even threw out that fancy theological term, hypostatic union. Oh, yeah. It was great. Yeah. We yeah. talked about it at youth group after that. Oh, yeah? What yeah. do youth have to say? Uh, well, here's what they had to say. Uh, you know, we're studying the Lord's Prayer, and you know, we open with our Father in heaven. And I said, okay, somebody tell me some things about the Father. Like, tell me about God the Father. What's he like? And, you know, they say a couple of things. I'm like, okay, now tell me about Jesus. What's he like? And uh, immediately, fully human, fully divine. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then another student says, and anything we say about Jesus, you can say the same thing about God the Father. I'm like, hallelujah. (laughs) I was. So our kids, our kids at Trinity are sharp. They're sharp. Just like when... uh, one of our young brothers, Bruce, mm, when mm-hmm. I ask at children's moment, what does it mean to be blessed? And he said, loved. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I should just sit down now, but I'll just keep going. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the hypostatic well, and, union. And man, isn't it, isn't it nice? Um, you know, one of the, the benefits of this strange, disruptive period in the history of Trinity and other churches is that our young folks have had to be in the Sunday morning service the whole time. There's been no children's church, yeah. no sort of segregation of, of worship. Um, and at least in our household, and I'm hoping in others, you know, this has led to some pretty interesting, you know, Sunday afternoon conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause even when they look like they're not listening, they're totally listening. Yeah. Now, our, our youth would be, you know, our students in 7th through 12th grade, they'd be in the service anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, your boys wouldn't. Mm. Lucy, my youngest daughter, she's in 4th grade, so she would, she would be in the service now. But, you know, she still looks to me like she's zoned out and doing other things. She's totally listening. Mm. It's really great. Yeah. And I think it's encouraging to the rest of the saints like to hear these kids share what they know about God and to know that they're learning along with us. It's just, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So the hypostatic union, um, you know, I, it's one of those things that I have affirmed um, as someone who recognizes the limits of, my capacity to know and understand and reason. Um, I have just affirmed it as, you know, everyone in the church who's smarter than me, who's come before me has affirmed it. So it must be right kind of thing. Um, but actually being able to spend the last few weeks reading some of these super geniuses from church history, talking about why, you know, the hypostatic union had to occur why it's the only way with the logic of the gospel that it makes sense has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, if you had asked me six weeks ago, you know, why does Jesus have to actually be human? 
I might have been able to fumble around some sort of answer of, well, you know, he needs to, you know, understand what we go through. He has to actually not sin, yada, yada, yada. But, um, but like, man, especially like Aquinas. Boy, Aquinas on the hypostatic union. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Like the, the level of depth that he's able to go to. And, and, you know, that image he uses of the woodsman is so helpful. Um, you I know, mean, talking I... about, um, you know, God is supremely powerful, but there, even with the supreme power of God, the, the order of creation is such that there are limits to what can be accomplished without a human body. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, like Aquinas talks about how a woodsman may walk into a forest, see a tall, straight tree that he wants to cut down. And he can rub his arm on that tree as long as he wants to, but that tree's not coming down. His arm is made of skin <laughs> and muscle. The tree's going to win against that arm. The tree is going to win against that arm. But with the right tool, that woodsman can drop the tree, take it to the mill, sell it, you know, feed his family for the winter. Um, And, you know, Aquinas talks about how for, for God, the intention is to reconcile humanity to himself. And the tool that is necessary to live out that intention is the incarnation, is the embrace of human nature, human body, human suffering, human experience. Um, Because sin came into the world through humanity, and it must take the human person to to pay the penalty of that sin to... um, to allow for the reconciliation. Right. So thank you, Thomists. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and I had read that, I believe, but it had been a long time. So as I was listening to the sermon, and again, for our listeners, today is Monday, April 26th. So the sermon to which we are referring was delivered yesterday. April 25th, you can go back and listen to it uh, if you so desire. But as I was listening to you, um, I take notes because, you know, I I think first off it helps me focus. Second off, I I believe God speaks to us, right, during the sermon. Um, And if God speaks, I'm going to write it down so I don't forget. Uh, But you said humanity was the tool that God had to use. And you know, in my head, I, I immediately um, went, I wonder how someone hears that um, who maybe hasn't read as much as now you have and who wonders, like, well, doesn't that take away the power of God? Isn't God all-powerful? Um, so, so, yeah. I know what I would say to somebody who said, well, if God had to use that, God can't be all-powerful. What, what would you say? Is this limiting God? Well, I mean, I think God self-limits in all sorts of ways. Yeah. So, sure, but how's that different than, um, you know, all the other ways we see God self-limiting in order? And, and one of the things that we start to see throughout the narrative of scripture is that the self-limiting of God tends towards um, opening up the possibility of humanity relating to God. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, infinitely big, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowing God, finite, fallible, you know, broken humanity, um, these these two things, how could they ever relate in any meaningful way? Yeah. Like it's not even it's not even like a human and a dog, right? Like humans are different than dogs, but humans and dogs can relate. Yes. 
it's more like a human and goldfish. Humans don't relate to goldfish. Right. I mean, we can feed them and watch them and find them interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the goldfish doesn't care that you got home. <laughs> right? right. Yes, this um, is true. So, you know, how, how, does, how does God, I mean, how, how can a human relate to a goldfish? How can God relate to humanity? You know, it would require a, um, an incredible act of self-limiting and emptying of oneself. And it gets us to Philippians 2. And so, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the short answer is, yeah. I mean, God intentionally limits his power in order to relate to creation. Well, and I think we see this echoed in parenting, right? Like, I don't know how life has been for you, but for me, parenting has been a huge means of grace. Mm. Like, really has changed the way I understand the love of God. Um, so, when my girls were little, like, I could have always just towered above them and been like, daughter, you must do this, Right. Um, but when I really wanted to connect with them, I would get down physically on their level, right? Um, because that's, yeah, that's that's like part of how we understand each other. We get down and we look in each other's faces. I'll leave the pandemic out of this. Uh, but yeah, you know, so I just... Um, yeah, we see God doing that, and I I stand by my parenting as a means of grace thing. Scripture talks about, you know, if God, if you being evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more does God give? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think even, even, you know, so you have that tool analogy for the hypostatic union, which even there, you know, isn't perfect for understanding it because um, you can get really uh, close to what is it is it lapsidarianism that God just kind of inhabits a body just one of the heresies of the church is you know, yeah. that, that God basically did like a uh, um, like a Patrick Swayze in, inhabit the body thing. For, oh, like Ghost? Yeah. The weirdest, creepiest, most la 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 movie ever? Yeah. I, I, I don't like you that know, movie. You know, the first time I saw Ghost, I just, I wanted Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray <laughs> and Harold Ramis to just burst through that door yeah. so much. Yeah. Trap that dude. Get rid of him. I like it. That's that's funny. I the first time I watched it, I basically sat there and like I felt like every 15 minutes was like, "Really? Come on." Re- I don't I don't do rom-com. I don't do a lot of the like female targeted older movies. I don't I've never never really appreciated them. But I digress. I just totally Yeah. So yeah, so it's not um you know God swooped down and stole the body of some dude named Jesus from Nazareth. It's not that, um, you know, it was just a shell that God inhabited, but God took on full humanity. Um, Jesus experienced temptation. Jesus experienced sorrow. You know, there was no immutability to the 33 years that Jesus spent, you know, on this planet. Um, So, you know, and and this is where, you know, I think it gets hard because a lot of, uh, a lot of folks want to hang on to immutability. Um, And, and like, it's, and again, Aquinas reconciles it. Um, you know, immutability with the hypostatic union. Um, but honestly, as I was reading that, it was so far over my head. I'm like, I have, this is like, 
I can read this 15 times and I'm still going to struggle to make sense of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think it's just, um, and it might be the sort of place where I'm like, eh, you know, Aquinas was a super genius, but he may be in his head a little bit too much here. <laughs> oh, you know, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Thank God for people who lived in their heads maybe a little too much so that we could Indeed. Uh, have some, some greater understanding in our tradition. Yeah. 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 And you know it's uh it's one of those things that uh, I I sometimes wish that more rigorous theological work had been done by Protestants over the last five hundred years, so that you know when we are talking about um, the essentials of our faith, we can, you know, go to uh, Wesleyan sources as well to make sense of it. Um, just because, you know, as as Protestants, for better or worse, there's a little bit of uh, um, there's a little bit of natural pushback to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one name for you and for our listeners. Like, you want some? I mean, this is not this is not like reading Athanasius or Aquinas or Augustine or you know. Um, but Thomas Oden has written so much. Um, gosh, now I'm forgetting the huge book that we were using for like intro to theology in 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 a seminary it was odin i can't remember all i remember is i went to class and i had bought the book on kindle and i was exceedingly glad because the book itself was like 900 pages yeah. and i was afraid i would be overwhelmed well and 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 when i say that right like part part of what i mean is that um like there have been protestants who've done rigorous theological work But most of it's in German, <laughs> and most of yeah. it is so turgid and difficult to read. Um, I mean, like, I it, it makes can't it, even. It makes Aquinas look like Doctor Seuss. Like reading Moltmann is so turgid, oh, so God. complicated, so you know. How much Kant have you read? enough to know I don't want to read more. <laughs> no, that's not true. Yeah. yeah. Kant's okay. Yeah, I mean, there, okay. there are, uh, but if you want some basics of theology, uh, Thomas Oden. Phil Talon. Huh? Phil Talon. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, but Oden's, uh, you know, oh, Classic Christianity. That's the name of the, the text. Mm. Classic Christianity. A systematic theology, which systematic theology and Wesleyanism like typically aren't spoken in the same words. We don't have, I mean, the Wesleyan theology is derivative of the articles of religion from adapted from the Anglican Church and the writings of Wesley. Which are historical documents in the UMC anyway, right? Yeah, well... <laughs> Oh I don't know. I, I'm ready for some energy drinks, Serena. Let's 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 get let's at this. Let's do it. All right, Caleb, you provided the drink this week. What do we got? Yeah, so this is uh, Hapthor Bjornsson's uh, favorite, Rain Sour Apple. Whose favorite? Hapthor Julius Bjornsson. The mountain from Game of Thrones. More importantly, the guy who deadlifted 501 I kilograms. I knew I recognized that name. Okay, I feel better now. Okay. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So this is a rain, sour apple, 300 milligrams of caffeine, whole bunch of vitamins. Um, I don't know if this one has uh, beta alanine to give you the, um, the tingles again or not. It doesn't look like it, so... I'm I'm okay with that. 
so here's here's what does concern me. There's a big label on this. Recommended for persons 18 years or older. Now, I think that that should be on all of these energy drinks. Luckily, you are but over 18. I am. I am. All right. All right. Let's check it out. Okay. The rush smell of sour apple comes right out of the can and mm. smacks you in the nose. Delicious. Caleb, that's not good. Oh, that's delicious. You're crazy. It's like a sour apple pop in my hand. Oh. You know those caramel, caramel apple uh, lollipops? Yeah. Oh, With, yeah. That I don't I love. I get into that. I'm trying it again. Woo! That's good. That's really good. Okay. Okay, second drink wasn't as bad. It's like apple juice on there's, steroids. There's extra sour. I still expected it to... That's my problem. I expected it to still be a little bit sweet. It, it is definitely more sour than sweet, but not terribly so. Yeah. All right, so there are two servings per container. And in each serving, we have 50% uh, of our daily allowance of vitamins B3, 6, and 12. So that's 100% in the can. Uh, let's see. Now, here's, this is, here's what I wonder. Uh, then we've got the 300 milligrams of natural caffeine. I wonder if that's per serving or per can. No, it's for the whole can. Okay. It says from the bottom. Okay, excellent. 150 milligrams per eight ounce. So, yeah, if it was 600 milligrams, I'm not sure you'd be able to legally sell in this country. Maybe. Okay, good. Glad you glad you read more closely than I did. Well, it's not going to give me the tingles, so that's that's good. Hmm. That is really good. By the way, did you know that uh, last week's podcast was our ninth podcast? So today, this is number ten. This is number ten. All right. Actually, it's number eleven, but one of them was deleted. So, oh, but yeah. this is this is published number ten. Sweet. We have drank ten energy drinks. Yeah. So last week's was more delicious than this, but this is almost as delicious. So this one gets a nine. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, there's no like vitamin taste. There was one, we opened it and you like, you could smell vitamins and it wasn't yeah. great. That was that, uh, um, the adrenaline shock. Like oh, the yeah. first few drinks were terrible. Yeah, but then you're like, hmm, not so bad. I think it killed taste buds. I remember and that. The rest of the taste buds were like, don't kill me. That was the the Mussolini of the energy drinks. But yes. this one, this one's pretty good. Oh, so this, uh, is, this is great. This one is advertising increased concentration and reduced fatigue. And as always, will I'll I'll uh, I'll be the judge of that. Total body yeah. fuel. You think you think your man drinks this before he deadlifts five hundred pounds? I he drinks something from this can, whether it is this or he has refilled the can with like cattle steroids. I'm not sure, but I don't, steroids aren't consumable like that, are they? It's typically a pill when or a shot. When you're six nine, yeah. four hundred twenty yeah. pounds, like. Yeah. Who knows? Like, his physiology doesn't work the same as yours and I's. Mm. I am sure that's true. Hey, when's the draft? Was the draft yesterday or today? The draft is, starts Thursday. The draft starts Thursday. Oh, I was close. I knew it was this week, though. Thursday night, all day Friday, all day Saturday. And, and Justin Fields, did I get that yeah. right? I was told is... Like the 49ers are looking at drafting him. Is that also correct? Um, there is speculation the 49ers have moved off him. Oh, because man, it Kyle so Shanahan fast. might not be as smart as people think he is. But here's what our listeners should pick up on I am growing. Did you see how I learned a little bit last week? 
and I can almost talk about the football sports with you. Not quite. Yeah, you can almost talk about the football sports. I'm proud of you. Thanks. All right. Moving on. All right, Serena. We uh, teased at this a couple weeks back, um, but you, by the time this uh, podcast is published, you will have preached on this. So we waited to answer the question. Here it comes again. Asking for a friend, what exactly did Jesus do for the three days after Jesus was buried and before he rose from the dead? Nobody ever really talks about it and seems like it might be like kind of a big deal. (laughs) The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. It seems like a page of the book is missing, since we never talk about what happened during the he descended into hell line. Please help. Yes. All right. So, uh, again, this is being recorded on Monday, April 26th, prior to my preaching. Uh, and as you know, that through the week before you preach, uh, your your sermon is still in final manuscript, like almost final manuscript form, right? But uh, so things are subject to change since I'm saying this before I preach. However, uh, so asking for a friend, first, I want you to know where I'm getting my material from. Uh, there is a gentleman by the name of uh, Gonzalez, uh, shoot. Justo? Yeah, Justo. Justo Gonzalez, church historian, uh, wrote The Story of Christianity, uh, volumes one and two, which is what a lot, most, I believe, seminary, Protestant seminary students use. I, I think it's not just Protestants. I, I think just about everybody uses Justo. It, it could be. I mean, so... My undergraduate at Cedarville, we used Husto. Dang. And then, you know, at a mainline seminary, we used Husto yeah. again. I mean, to, yeah. to be fair, like United, while it is a United Methodist seminary, is far more um, traditional. I don't want to. I don't know. I mean, maybe now. Back well, when, when I when I started, it certainly wasn't. It was. That yeah, way. it was still. It was mainline getting MEF money. Had just had uh, uh, Willie Nelson on the board, which is just incredible to me. That's incredible to me. Anyway, uh, we digress. Okay, so he wrote this book called uh, "The Apostles' Creed for Today," and the "For Today" uh, title is a series. Um, so I trust this author. Uh, he, he knows his stuff. So he has a chapter on he descended to the dead. So probably the first thing that we should talk about is uh, this is not new, right? Like this is mentioned in the Bible. It's just not things we explore very often. Um, but uh, some churches don't include this line. In their, when they recite the Apostles' Creed. In fact, uh, in the United Methodist hymnal, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, there are two versions. There is an ecumenical version and a traditional version. And in the traditional version, he descended to the dead or he descended to hell is a footnote. Now, I don't know how to explain a footnote in a traditional version, but here's what Gonzalez has to say. Uh, first off, This is all about tradition. So um, Catholics, Anglicans, Lutheran, Reformed, all of these uh, branches of Christianity include he descended to the dead or he descended into hell uh, when they recite the Apostles' Creed. Some in the Wesleyan tradition do not. And here's here's what's up with that. Uh, John Wesley was very well read. Although he says, I am a man of one book, that one book being the Bible, uh, that doesn't mean that was the only thing he read. So he read a lot of the patriarchs, and he would have realized that this line was added a little later to the creed, 
uh, around the fourth century sometime, but really like for sure the sixth to eighth century. So by the beginning of the ninth, it was kind of officially adopted into the Apostles' Creed. Uh, But just because it wasn't in until later doesn't mean it isn't what the church believed. Um, So, yeah, Methodist might not all, I I mean, in fact, a couple of people here at Trinity, right, don't remember reciting this before. Yeah, and if uh, if the 88 hymnal is is all that you have uh, experienced with United Methodism, which, hey, I'm one of them, being born the year it was published. Um, yeah, it, it likely is something that um, you know, would, have been, would have been left out. I just have to, to say. To our detriment. There, there's a lot of detrimental things that were changed in both hymns and creeds uh, in the 88 hymnal. Uh, but getting back to this... Um, so you mentioned in the podcast earlier uh, Philippians 2, right? Um, Jesus, and it says, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, uh, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Um, so... The one who ascended is also the one who, or the one who descended is the one who ascended, as Paul affirms. Um, And it was a traditional Jewish belief, and I am reading now from this book, that the souls of the dead went to a place below the earth. And according to the Pharisees, they were there to await the final resurrection, okay? So, like, we talk about now how the souls of the dead are in the presence of the Lord. Um, The Jewish tradition at the time was the souls of the dead are in the depths of the earth awaiting the final resurrection. Um, So when Jesus died, being a human, his soul would have also gone to the other world, underworld, because he was really dead. Jesus wasn't partially dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was really all the way dead. Um. So when he descended into human form, right, or into the incarnation, when he lived here with us, he descended all the way, all the way down. So there are a couple of things that we, based on scripture and tradition, uh, believe happened when Jesus descended to the dead. Uh, First off, we have 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. All right. So the people who patiently waited, or sorry, the people who did not obey in the days of Noah would have also been in the underworld, right? This is where Jesus went. Um, Well, and then picking up in chapter 4, uh, they will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ, who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. Yeah. Um, yeah, like there, there is, you know, Peter especially, in Second Peter, um, really kind of makes this case for those who were God's people, who were awaiting the day of resurrection, Jesus went down and preached the good news to them in that period um, between his death and resurrection. Right. And so a couple of things here, right? Like he sets the captives free. People who were captive to this netherworld of awaiting the resurrection Uh, heard the proclamation, and were given an opportunity for redemption. Um, So, so, okay, so what I've just done is explained, like, the root of the change in the Apostles' Creed, going back by the ninth century it was there, and the scriptural basis for this line, right? Like, this is definitely something Christians have believed. Mm -hmm. So what does this all mean, and why is this a big deal? Because asking for a friend is right. This is a huge deal. Because... Uh, When Jesus was accused of uh, 
casting out Satan by Satan's power. Jesus is like, what? You can't do that. That's not how this works. Because if Satan has a house and you want to go kick Satan out of his house, you're not Satan if you could. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Satan doesn't kick Satan out of his house. Satan comes into Satan's house and parties, right? All right. So here's the deal. Uh, Jesus, by going into the realm of the dead, um, went to the one last place where Satan appeared to have complete dominion, right? Once you're there, there's nothing you can do about it. Evil reigns. Uh, basically, Jesus walked into Satan's house and uh, interrupted the party and led the party goers out, um, showing us that Jesus has complete and total power over all of all of creation. There is there is no place that Jesus does not have ultimate power over, and uh, if he defeated Satan in Satan's own domain. Jesus has ultimate authority and power over evil. Uh, I had a, a professor in seminary who, first off, like going to this class was like going to church every week. It was the best. Dr. Pete Bellini. Mm. Um, and one of the things he said, you know, in my Baptist head, like, I, I, I was okay with this. I was a little offended by the he descended to hell because it's like, well, can God really go to hell? Like, that doesn't make sense. Hell's a place of torment. God wouldn't go there. But Dr. Bellini once day said, I don't want a God who can't go to hell and kick down the gates. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're right. I don't want a God who, like, can't go into hell where people are suffering and kick down the gates. So, like, this has significant ramifications, not just for life after the death of our bodies, but, like, if God can do that, God, it, God can do anything, right? Like if God can go to the place of suffering and torment, God, we know God can be with us in our suffering. Um, God is all-powerful, all-loving. There, there's no limit, right? Like there, there's no limit to what God can and has done for us. Um, and that, I think, is why... I never want to recite the creed without that line in it. Also, why my daughter still wonders why Trinity doesn't have a stained glass window showing Jesus descending to the dead. <laughs> because this is so critical um, to recognizing the idea of Christ's victory over all evil and the power of death. Well, and I think uh, as well, it is part of... God demonstrating his faithfulness to those whom he made a covenant with in the Old Testament. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, you can't make a covenant with Abraham and then leave Abraham in, you know, in the land of the dead. Right. Like part of, part of God's faithfulness is going and swooping up those who, um, who, long and wait and yearn for uh, the day of resurrection and the reconciliation of all things to God. Yeah. And the way that Christians interpret the Old Testament, like we see hints of this already coming in the book of Psalms, especially where David um, says, you know, you didn't let your Holy One you didn't, you didn't, the holy, your holy one didn't stay in Hades, right? Like his flesh was not corrupted. David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the coming Messiah. Um, so there was recognition there mm. that like there, the holy one would descend um, and then ascend to the right hand of the father. So yeah, asking for a friend, I agree. This is, this is something we don't talk about quite enough. Um, I think some of that comes from, you know, our, um, oh, how do I want to phrase this? Like in Protestant circles, when we preach the gospel, we preach Christ crucified and resurrected because that is how we understand atonement. Um, but atonement is much deeper than penal substitution. 
um, which is the big fancy word for somebody had to pay the price for sin, so Jesus took it. Uh, atonement goes so much deeper than that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure why, why more Protestants didn't latch onto this. I'm not sure how it came to be that this was the primary focus of atonement. And we kind of like, what is it? Christus Victor, right? Christus, I pronounced this incorrectly. Here's my theory. My theory is that Protestantism is a consumable good. Oh, man. It's true. Therefore, Protestantism will continually seek the simplest, most palatable means of interpreting theology. The Because, you know, this isn't like, um, you know, Catholicism in the 13th century, where, you know, if you are living in Italy in the 13th century, you are Catholic mm-hmm. or you are excommunicated. Right, like there, it, there are no other shows in town. Like, if you want to be part of the religious community, there is one church. Right, so in that scenario, there is a an obligation to um, to challenge the people of God to think. There's a challenge to you know, push forward, um, you know, our understanding of who God is and how we can, how we can relate to God. There's a, there's a, there's incentive there, but in Protestant North America in the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries, the incentive is the exact opposite. Yeah. The incentive is to preach and teach in such a way that no matter how um, how mature someone is in their spirituality, they can understand what's being said, feel good about what's being said, and consume your religious product. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, yeah, that's cynical on my part I know but I think I think it's pretty much right right like um, you don't see um, I mean now as soon as I say this someone will be like well that's not right I heard Craig Greshel preaching on the hypostatic union two years ago Um, (laughs) but generally you don't see challenging theological topics be something that are tackled in megachurches. Yeah. Right? Like, it's it, it's against the, the business model. Um, because, you know, you recognize that there are 8,000 people who are going to be over there, be there uh, over the course of the weekend. And there is an element of, you know, you need the foundation in the first floor and the second floor before you can build the third floor. And if you have folks who don't have a foundation, jumping right to, um, you know, some of the complexities of systematic theology, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that folks will just be, you know, confused and, and frustrated. Um, but even though that is a a possibility and a fear, I don't think we can give up on it. Um, I mean, I think it's important that we understand what we believe as Christians. Yeah. Like, I think it's important that we can, um, you know, not only know the creeds, but be able to make sense of them to some degree. And, you know, it's going to be an ever-progressing, ever-changing degree of understanding. Um, But, you know, at a certain point... Um, the church that only feeds milk will only have babies. Yeah. 
For sure. Um, if we want mature Christians, at a certain point, you have to start eating meat. Um, you have to start, uh, you know, bringing more challenging passages and theological concepts to bear, um, which is hard. I mean, don't get me wrong. This has been the the roughest three weeks of preaching, you know, maybe <laughs> ever. Because I mean, yeah, this yeah. this is a lot harder to preach than, um, you know, a a, a Bible story. <laughs> Um, right. Where you know you make a life application to it, and uh, you know recite a poem, and you know find three points, and everybody's happy. Um, make a few jokes. You forgot that one. Yeah. Well, uh, a joke, three points, and a poem. Right? Yep. Is that the? Yeah. But you know, I like. I think we have to. Right. Like it's. Um, if we are going to be faithful in helping uh, the people of God reach maturity, um, you know, y- y- you can't you can't feed on milk alone, right? Well, and I think um, so. This is what's happening with our student ministry here at Trinity. Like, I refuse. I refuse to keep using the milk toast curriculum that's out there. Now, curriculum that's out there is really good. And there is a sense to which our students also need to understand the basics and get that like life application. But uh, here's what happens, right? Like young Christians go off to college and lose their faith because they don't really understand it. They don't get it. Like not really. They haven't, they haven't learned the harder things. Um, and I would say that, you know, the other thing that we have a responsibility to that I don't know that mega churches do well, I'm hoping that, um, going forward, Methodism will re- reclaim this and re-embrace it is, you know, the, to seek after sanctification, right? Like our faith can't, we need the head knowledge and we also need the, the experience, Right. Um, without the head knowledge, we can't fully understand our experience and see it from a Christian worldview. Uh, but with only head knowledge, nothing, nothing actually changes. Like the disciple program, the, the Bible studies, awesome Bible studies. But I, I don't know a lot of Christians who have been through them and have that emotional and spiritual maturity. Like it's possible to get through those without becoming emotionally and spiritually mature. I think it depends on who is leading them mm-hmm. and whether they embrace the soul questions and the transformation conversations or if they just try to move through the material. Mm-hmm. Because I think disciple has the capacity to do a great job of asking soul questions like the materials there. Yeah. Um, but the problem is you tend to have four hours of material to talk about during your two hour session and you have to decide what to cut. And the easiest part to cut is what does this mean for my obedience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's two sided, right? Like we need to be sanctified in learning to love God and the love language of God is obedience but we also need to be made mature in our knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Like knowing God and loving God are, you know, these sort of two poles um, in the, the growth of, of a Christian person. Um, and at a certain point, we can't get any further in loving God until we know God more and our knowledge of God is empty and hollow unless it is undergirded by obedience, right? Like these two things have to work in concert um, to reach spiritual maturity. Right. Which is why theology is an act of worship. Sure is. Like going, I wish, uh, So I started my seminary experience at Asbury. Um, But then when I moved to central Ohio and after, you know, just the 
the difficulty of continuing online, I transferred to United so I could be there in person. Uh, but at Asbury's orientation, I don't remember who said it, but I remember it being said like, your seminary desk is an altar. Mm. Like, this is not just head knowledge. This is worship. Um, and I like that has rang truth for me ever since. It's why I think I said this last week after we were done recording, like talking about Athanasius, like this gets me going and rekindles my love of God and a love for the church. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like I hope every listener walks away from the second pot going, God's so crazy. This is so cool. I don't know if you do always, but you know, I hope, I hope that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's good hope to have. Good hope to have. Well, uh, this has been fun. It's been real. We, uh, we hope that you stay caffeinated and stay in love with Jesus, and we will talk to you later. Oh, and hey, before we let our wonderful <laughs> listeners go, uh, I want everyone to know that we are getting a new email address. We are going, you can email your questions or comments, concerns, feedback, uh, hate mail, all to secondpot at gctrinity.org so that that will not fall into Caleb's or mine's email and be easily, yes, (laughs) because it happens quickly. So secondpot at gctrinity.org. Yeah, and send it in because... um, I think our our best conversations come from good questions. Absolutely. And we are quickly running out of the questions that have come in. So unless you want more conversation about energy drinks and Justin Fields' draft prospects, Lord which help I us. don't think is what you're here for, um, yeah, send it in. We will, uh, we will learn together and grow together, and it'll be good. All right. Take care. Talk to you next week. Feeling kind of sleepy, really in alert. It's reminiscent of all the times that I fell asleep in church. History and theology and some anthropology, too. We'll figure it out together so... Buckle up my buckaroo Put a second pause